The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American power, politics and society. On each episode, I will talk to an American expert or an expert on America about something that's going on in America in 2023. Uh, we are in a Porsche in South London at the Alliance. Is it the Alliance? The Alliance, Alliance for Responsible the Citizenship. Alliance for Responsible Citizenship. Sorry, I'm not very good at acronyms. It's ARC or ARC. Uh, and this is a big several day conference here in London discussing and debating many things. One of the things that is being talked about is energy. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Robert Bryce, who is a brilliant American writer on energy, author of many books. And you've submitted a paper for I this have. conference. Yeah on electrification. Correct. And your thesis, and this has been the thesis of quite a lot of your work, is that net zero policies are hampering progress in terms of real progress. I think uh, I think the Britishism would be loony round the bend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Bonkers. Crazy town. Yes. Not going to happen. Give us a sort of overview of quite how badly net zero policies are hampering global growth. Well, let me put it this way. I can't say, oh, it's hampering by 1%, 2 percentage points, you know, but I think the entire scenario, the entire thesis of these net zero claims, it won't happen, this net zero goal. It won't happen because it can't happen. Hmm. The constraints, we live in a world, Freddie, it's defined by networks. We live in a world of network, a network of networks, right? We don't think about it much, but, you know, I've ridden the tube here and it's just amazing, right? You know, much cleaner and faster than the subway in New York City, for instance. You know, maybe Hmm. it's not as good as Paris. I don't know. But, you know, (laughs) but it's amazing, right? Well, the, the network of systems that are connecting there, whether it's part of the electric grid and the rail systems and the rail workers and the personnel that maintain that system, and trucks and cranes and overhead rigging and all these other things that work together. So this idea that we're suddenly going to change the entire underpinning of the modern global economy, which runs 80% on hydrocarbons, coal, oil, and natural gas, and do so in, you know, 30 years, it's madness. There's no way we can make it happen because if we just start with land use, and this is one of the issues I don't talk about in the, in the Powering the Unplugged paper I did for ARC, but it's been a long focus of mine. There's not enough land for all the renewable junk that these proponents want to put up. There's mm. just not enough now. I mean, you're, you're a Brit. You know about this. Very vicious battles across rural Britain, across rural Scotland. Just a week ago in North Devon, which is 300 clicks, uh, 300 kilometers west of here. Enormous opposition to a high-voltage transmission line that's proposed to carry power from an offshore wind project to the grid onshore. So this opposition is happening all around the world. The problem is fundamentally with renewables. There are many problems, including intermittency. We don't have enough land for all these bat-killing and bird-killing, whale-killing wind turbines they want to build. Nor is there enough land for all the solar panels they claim that will be needed to even make a, a dent in hydrocarbons overall contribution. So there are many problems with net zero. That's just one of them. The cost is astronomical. Bjorn Lomborg was just presenting on this. It won't happen because it can't happen. Yes. Well, and that points towards a fundamental lack of realism in global Absol- leaders absolutely. about about what they're doing. Because as you point out in your work, 
coal usage has increased dramatically. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and give us some of the stats on that. I mean, it's sure, sure. Well, I, I, I laugh about this sometimes because now it's almost 10 years ago, I debated a guy named Jigger Shaw. He made a fortune in the solar business in the United States, and, you know, good for him. But I remember distinctly, we were debated in New York, and I pointed out at that time that coal demand was rising globally. And he says, ah, pff, you know, it doesn't matter. Solar is going to take over the world. Okay, well, where are we? The IEA just released a report just a few weeks ago, in fact, that said global coal demand will set another new record this year of 8.4 billion tons. Mm. Last year, China it permitted two new coal-fired power plants a week. They're, they're going to add 100 gigawatts of new coal-fired capacity. Indonesia, Vietnam, Japan is building coal-fired power plants. I was in Tokyo earlier this year. Mm. TEPCO, which owns Tokyo Electric Power Company, owns Fukushima Daiichi. They are building an ultra-supercritical coal plant on Tokyo Bay right now. Mm. They're also adding five gigawatts of new gas-fired capacity. So two gigawatts of coal capacity in Japan, home of the Kyoto Protocol. So the reality is that I call it the iron law of electricity. People, countries, and businesses will do whatever they have to do to get the electricity they need. And that includes building coal plants and lots of them. Mm. And you didn't mention Germany, though, which is also uh, going <laughs> well, back to Well, yes, we were laughing about talking about Germany before we started recording. Explain Germany. I mean, I can't. You know, and if I were a better person, maybe a better Christian, I'd feel badly for them. I don't. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> they drove themselves into the ditch at speed, you know, with this energy vendor, and they're going to waste a trillion dollars or more, and the result is going to be economic ruination. Mm. They're deindustrializing. They're facing declining, not only negative economic growth today, mm. Their biggest industrial firms are saying we're going overseas. Some, a lot of them are going to come to the U.S. Yes. And I live in Texas. I'm from Oklahoma. I'm pro-U.S. But this is bad for Germany. It's bad for Europe. And what, you know, Germany is the biggest economy in Europe. So if Germany declines, it's going to have effects, ripple effects throughout the continent. But they tied themselves to Russian gas. And, I, you know, you can blame Angela Merkel for part of this. You can blame her as well and some of the other politicians for this energy venda, which is just absolutely ruinous. And they're not building, they can't build enough renewables. They've had wind droughts last year that were, you know, put them on the edge of blackouts. So these ideas around hitching our economy, either Germany or the UK or any economy in the world, solely to these weather-dependent renewables, it's just madness. Well, the reason I didn't laugh quite as mirthfully as you about Germany (laughs) is not because I'm a nice person, but it led me to think that actually Britain is going to be is slightly behind Germany on this, I think, in terms of encountering that iron law of energy that you were talking about. Because for all our pride that we take in being, you know, a leading country in terms of net zero targets, etc., we are going to pretty soon have to face the reality that our energy policies don't add up. Our energy is getting extremely expensive. Right. And we might start having to think about going backwards in terms of, you know, the green agenda. Uh, well, I to, think you, to be we, able to we, produce. We have already seen this. I mean, it yeah. was just a couple of weeks ago. Your prime minister, Rishi Sunak, you know, after being Mr. Net Zero for a while, yeah. then says, oh, by the way, I remember his words. Now we're going to be realistic and pragmatic. Right. Yes. Those were the words I remembered. I wrote about it. And well, why is he doing it? He's looking around and looking at the politics of this and realizing if I don't backtrack on this, it's going to be we're going to be out of office now. And what happened now? You probably saw the poll numbers. Right in the week after they did that, the Tories came up in the polls four points. Yes, but they managed to take care of that pretty quickly and, and get themselves back down quite quickly. <laughs> well, they had know, a Tory party conference, a complete disaster. Yeah. But 
I wonder on on that sort of subject. Of, well, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, but, no, I'm sorry to interrupt. But Liz Truss came in for what you know, two cups of coffee, and right, yeah. and she said we're gonna we're gonna start fracking again, right? Yes. You know, which was absolutely the most sane policy that she could do, mm. right? Particularly in the wake of the Russian war, Britain has significant shale gas resources and ones that potentially are even richer than the shale gas resources in the United States, which is saying something because they're enormous, right? Yeah. So the Gainsborough trough. I uh, mentioned George Yates from Hayco Energy. Just you know, he's investing in the UK. The amount of energy, the gas in places, the numbers are just staggeringly large. Mm. But you have to drill for them. Yes. So you had trust come in and say we're going to repeal a fracking ban, and then Sunak comes in and says, oh no, we're going to keep the fracking ban in place. What are you not paying attention? I mean, truly, I mean, this is just an, it's an insane approach given the vulnerability of the British economy to these swings in in natural gas prices. You're importing what, half or a third of your gas now? I mean, yeah. so you've got to be drilling and, and producing more of your own resources, and yet you don't seem to be, you know, your politicians don't seem to care. And what do you put that lack of care down to? I mean, it's probably a bit too easy to sort of dismiss it as just eco-zealotry. Is there something more fundamental going on? Is there a sort of unwillingness to confront decline as a nation or something like that? Well, I'd be speculating, of course, on that because I can't, you know, I, I live in Texas, so I'm no hardly an expert on British politics. But George Yates, I interviewed him this morning for my podcast, the Power Hungry podcast, and I asked him that very question about what's going on. He said it's this he called it the institutionalization of the green agenda mm. so that it's been bought into here in the UK by both the Tories and by Labour. And that makes some sense to me. I mean, it sounds right, right? Mm. Because the, the, the stories that I read, what I read about Sunak was that he had strong supporters in the Tory party who didn't want fracking, right? They, I guess they have estates and, you know, and they didn't want drill rigs in their neighborhoods up, you know, wherever they're. So maybe that's the case. Mm. But I'm all for sobriety, very clear eyed approaches to the energy and power. These are the most important sectors of the economy here in Britain and around the world. And you mess them up. You fuck them up. We're on a podcast, so I can say this <laughs> word. It's your extreme peril. Yeah. And, and yet you still haven't repealed the fracking ban. And Sunak's kind of gone this half step of saying, well, we'll go back in the North Sea. Okay, well, go ahead. Yeah. But you know you have massive resources here on shore. And I'll just end with this one quick point. Maybe it's obscure history, but it's important history nevertheless. An intriguing book was written called The Secret of Sherwood Forest, and maybe you know about this. In 1943, a bunch of drillers from Oklahoma came to Britain during the war, mm. and they drilled in Sherwood Forest. And within a span of a year, they drilled over 100 wells and went from zero production to 3,000 barrels a day mm. in Britain yes. in the span of a year. Well, I mean, up until the 1970s and 80s, we were a energy exporting country. Right, because you're the, you found the North Sea and it was just amazing, right? Yeah. You know, I think, and, and then it peaked in the 90s and I think it's been declining ever since. I'm not remembering those numbers exactly, but you discovered the North Sea and then you just quit. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, you got to keep going. Well, when um, Rishi Sunak, our Prime Minister, made this slight reverse ferret yeah. on net zero, not a proper reverse ferret, but a, a slight deviation, one of the things that was talked about a lot was if we are going to continue using hydrocarbons in a pragmatic and sensible way, but still trying to honour net zero obligations, we would have to use a lot of carbon capture. What is your view of that? Is that a bit of a, a sort of phantom? Is that a realistic and credible future for hydrocarbon production to sort of carbon capture it in a way that it makes it net zero friendly? No. Good. Good answer. <laughs> Thank you. We'll just move on. So, sure, it's a scale problem, Freddie. Right. I mean, just very simply... So uh, let's take a typical power plant. Say it's 100 megawatts. 
Well, to capture the carbon from that power plant, you have a parasitic load, that's the term of art, of 30% or so. Mm. So your 100 megawatts of output is now 70 megawatts. Mm. Well, then you have a big bunch of you know carbon dioxide that's a colorless, odorless, worthless gas that's heavier than air, and it's an asphyxiant. Mm. Oh, and it's corrosive. So you're going to build a pipeline to then take that gas somewhere. Freddie, we can't build pipelines that carry products that are valuable, mm. like oil and gas, right? I mean, there's always opposition to them, right? Yeah. How are we going to build pipelines of any length to carry a colorless, odorless, worthless gas that's heavier than air and is fixing it, and it's corrosive, right? Yes. How are you going to do this? I mean, and go slowly because I'm from Oklahoma. I'm a little dumb, right? <laughs> but it doesn't make any sense to me when you take just those parts of it together. And then you have to find a reservoir that will accept that much CO2. You have to pump it down there. Effectively... If you look at, remembering my numbers uh, just off the top of my head, but I wrote a book in 2010 called Power Hungry, uh, Myths of Green Energy, the Real Fuels of the Future. I just did the simple math. So if you just want to sequester 10% of global CO2, 10%, give or take, you would have to replicate the entire global oil and gas sector in reverse yeah. in order to take that massive amount of CO2 and pump it down in the ground. Yes. So. My view on CCS is that, you know, yes, there are now big tax credits in the U.S., and there are a lot of companies chasing what's called 45Q under the Inflation Reduction Act, and there's billions of dollars available, so some companies are doing it. Okay, great. But it's a boutique thing that will never scale. So my, my final point on that, if we're going to be serious about this combustion CO2, we can't burn it first. We have to use nuclear. We have to avoid as much combustion as possible. Well, that was going to, I was going to get on to nuclear in my next question. Sure. Just to finish on CCS, you'd yeah. say carbon capture. You'd say... It's at best a sort of fig leaf to carry on using hydrocarbons. Uh, yeah, you call it a fig leaf. I just call it a bad idea. Okay. okay. Well, <laughs> I, call it, I could call it an idea that's been around. I wrote a piece in the New York Times that was published down 2010. Yeah. Pointing out the problems, scale, corrosion, you know, the problems of the mass and, you know, approvals and the rest of it. I wouldn't change a word of it today. Yeah. And so look around the globe. We have a tiny handful of projects that are doing CCS and they're very small. Yes. So the idea that we're going to ramp them up and we're going to finally, you know, make this scale up, I, I'm, I'm, I'm all day skeptical. Well, I was going to ask about nuclear because on my podcast, not on this show, on my podcast Americano recently, we had Oliver Stone, yeah, the film sure. director. Because, nuclear Now, yeah. Yeah. And I thought it was a, quite an interesting film, actually. Yeah. And it was quite eccentric coming from Oliver Stone. Yeah. But, I mean, he made this point very forcefully from the left, from the political left, that nuclear is the only option for the future of the planet. And it sounds to me like you'd agree with that. I've been pro-nuclear for a long time. My view on nuclear is very simple. If you're anti-carbon dioxide and anti-nuclear, you're pro-blackout. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm anti-blackout. I'm very <laughs> anti-blackout. I live in Texas. I was blacked out in 2021 for two days, right? Yes. During the and your iron law, if true, everybody's anti-blackout. We can pretend that we could live in some primordial age, but we can't. Yeah, you, yeah. you're welcome to do it. I don't want to do it. Right? <laughs> you know, have you have at it, Freddie. But right. so... I'm adamantly pro-nuclear, and I think what's happening, you're, you're getting some traction here in Britain with, uh, you started Sizewell C, right? You know, construction is underway. That's a good mm. step forward. And you're having this tendered offer now around uh, this new small modular reactor design, and maybe Rolls-Royce, I know, is one, one of the contenders, right, which for this design and, and approval process. I think particularly in the wake of the Russia-Ukraine war, this is an imperative for all of Europe. And my view is that Europe maybe Poland, maybe uh, Romania, maybe France will be the first to deploy a new small modular reactor because they have the political will to make it happen. Mm. But I think the Russia-Ukraine war makes that 
gives much more importance, strategic importance, to that development of nuclear in Europe. Romania may be the odds-on favorite, right, because their government has been pro-nuclear. They're very technically very good. I know one of, uh, one of our guys behind the camera here is from Bucharest, so he's, uh, he's nodding and back there saying, that's great, Romania, go <laughs> Romania. But there are a lot of hurdles. So let's be clear and very, again, very sober about what those hurdles are, right, mm. because you've got to get the regulatory approval. You need a lot of capital, and you have to get the fuel. And right now, Russia controls 46% of the global enriched uranium market. Mm. So in the U.S. now, we're getting roughly 25% of the fuel for our nuclear reactors from Russia. Well, Russia's not our friend. And so, you know, how long will that continue? We don't know, right? So the U.S. is slowly ramping up uranium production. Here in the in the U.K., I guess you're going to have Urenco, which I think is German, Dutch, British. I think you're, you're going to start in more enriching more uranium here on the continent. But you better get cracking. I mean, you know, mm. this is an imperative that if climate matters, right, otherwise go back to coal. Well, nuclear is stable, but it's not entirely reliable. I'm not just talking about the danger there. I'm talking about the upkeep of it. I mean, in France in the last year and a half. Is yeah, well, they're terrible operators. I mean, they just neglected. Why did that happen with the French? They weren't operating their plants very well. Right. You, if you're going to build a house and you're going to keep it for a while, you got to do you got to paint it. you got to do that. You know, this, yeah. they've missed a lot of those maintenance things that should have happened. Why, why is it happening now? Why didn't it happen 10 years ago? They were better operators. So well, I blame that on the... extraordinarily bad timing, too, with the, of course. With the war in Ukraine. Breaking yeah, of course. But a point that was made in that Oliver Stone film that I'd like to get your opinion on is sure. that the the environmentalist left in America, the Sierra Club, Greenpeace, they were initially quite pro-nuclear. And this was something I was unaware of, really. And Stone's theory, and it's possibly slightly conspiratorial, is that Big Oil essentially funded anti-nuclear propaganda on the left and made everybody allergic to the idea of nuclear power and a nuclear future. Mm. Do you think there's much credibility? Do you, do you think that sounds true uh, to you? I've heard those claims before. I've never seen any proof of that. I don't, yeah. I, you know, today I will I will tell you, I don't know anybody in the oil and gas business, and I know a fair number of people in the oil and in the energy sector broadly. I don't know a single one of them is anti-nuclear. Yeah. And so it's easy to talk about conspiracies. And remember, that, you know, all due respect, he also made the film about John F. Kennedy and right, yeah, yeah. kind of, you know, conspiracy theories yeah, are us. That's right? why he's was, so great. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm a longtime critic of the Sierra Club, the Natural Resources Defense Council, Environmental Defense Fund, all of these big NGOs in the United States. I don't like those people. I don't like them at all. And I'm sure they don't like me back, and I'm just fine with that. Mm. But I find they're a parasitic force in American politics. They are unaccountable, extraordinarily well-funded. Mm. They're spending on the order of $4.5 billion a year. That's just the 25 largest ones. Mm. And the policies they are promoting, including their anti-nuclear stance— is absolutely corrosive in our overall politics and, 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 and the, the reliability, affordability, and resilience of our electric grid. They have no tolerance, no, no patience for any of those people. I think they, they are very powerful. They're very effective. Give them credit. But they have been anti-nuclear for decades because it suits a narrative that fits their agenda, which is this all-renewable, all-the-time narrative but it can't work. It won't work. And they know, I think intellectually, if you pin them down, they will acknowledge it. But I find them all just completely dishonest. And further, I think the part that I, I just grills my cheese, as my late brother John Bryce would say, was they don't 
have any understanding of what this means for the poor and the middle class yeah. and all of these policies, including natural gas bans, including these electric car mandates, electric vehicle charging, it all screws the poor and the middle class, all of it. And, and I just find that reprehensible. And as you point out in your paper, women in the developing world. Right. And so I think we can separate some of the issues that I talk about. Thank you for bringing up my paper. It's called Powering the Unplugged. Yeah. It's on the, the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship's website. You can find it on my Substack, robertbryce.substack.com. I've excerpted all of it there. And I'm proud of the paper. And, and I'm proud of the paper for a lot of reasons. One, it's, it's flattering to be asked by this new group. And I'm, I'm a longtime fan of Jordan Peterson, Bjorn Lomborg, and, and what the work that they do. But this idea of we need a better vision for the future, right? Well, if we can't have that better vision unless we have a very sober and, and clear look at where we are in terms of energy and power. And where is, what is the biggest challenge? And the one that I think is the most urgent is how do we bring more energy and power to poor women and girls in developing countries? Because they are the most vulnerable in societies. Hmm. And so a point that I make in the paper and one that I mentioned, I, I did a uh, monologue this morning talking about my paper for ARC. A few years ago, you should look it up on YouTube, Hans Rosling, the late Swedish demographer, did this great video. And it just, I, I recommend it a lot because it's so powerful. So he's dead now, and he probably died at age 70-something or other. But he comes on stage. I think it's a TED Talk. I'm not sure. But he comes on stage, and he tells a story about his grandmother and that when he was a child, his parents bought a washing machine. And it was a big day. And on that day, his grandmother came over, and he reenacts it. He puts the clothes in the washer, and there's actually a washing machine on stage with it. And he pulls the clothes out of the bucket, and he puts them in the washer, and he closes it, and he remembers that the day that they got the washing machine. The day I had it all hooked up, his grandmother came over and she said, I want to be the one that pushes the button to mm. start the washing machine because she had her whole life washed clothes by hand. Mm. And you twin that with his other, his other key point, which is that there are 5 billion people in the world today walking around in clothes that have been washed by hand. Well, if there are 5 billion people walking around in clothes that have been washed by hand, that means 2.5 billion women and girls are doing that washing. Yes. And every hour, every minute, every day, that they're humped over that wash bucket is an hour a day in a minute that they're not in the library or at school or looking for a job or doing something to be independent. Yeah. So the importance of energy and electricity in particular to women and girls cannot be overstated. As I say in one of my favorite lines, electricity frees women and girls from the pump, the stove, and the wash tub. Yes. Power is empowering. Exactly. To, yeah, Very yeah. well put. Yeah, exactly. Power is power. Power equals power. It is, it is absolutely essential for women and girls. Yes. And just to, in case people start screaming sexy, say, you're not saying that women have to do those chores. You're saying that in those societies... People can scream whatever they want. <laughs> <laughs> I can't hear them well, from here. That's good. Oh, which that's people good. would those we'll be? We'll just have to listen to them. <laughs> uh, look, no, I, I'm not saying... Look, but this is just a fact. And it's and there's no sexism here. Let's move beyond this, you know, wokeism. Yeah. And let's recognize what the real story is here. Mm. And I, so, some data that I cite in the report... A few years ago, UNICEF did a, published a report on the state of children globally. And what did they find? The countries that have the highest rates of child marriage, where women are, or girls are married before the age of 18 and many before the age of 15, are highest in the countries where there's no power, no electricity. Yes. Right? So these women are effectively slaves in these countries where they don't have electricity. Well, and to, to go back to that power is empowering point, there's some very interesting charts in your paper on, that, on the number of things that map very neatly positive things that we think about yeah. that map very neatly with levels of power, levels of access to power. GDP. I GDP. mean, you can look at, 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 at I, I screen grabbed a couple of charts that the IEA did a few years ago, and 
they showed GDP and electricity. They just march in tango all the time, right? Mm. You know, they're right next to each other all the time. That this is what you know. This is how it works. Well, electrification has to be the future, uh, whichever way you look at it. Uh, I think that's fair to say, unless we go backwards entirely. We need enormous amounts of new generation globally if we're going to try. And when you talk about electrification. I mean, there's also this push of electrify everything. This mm. is in the rich countries, which is a bad course of action in terms of affordability, resilience, and reliability. But the big challenge is that this electrification challenge in developing countries. Consider this. So Pakistan, Indonesia, and India by themselves on per capita basis use, are, are part of what I call the unplugged world. Mm. So they use less. Those, those, those 1.9 billion people, roughly a quarter of the world's population, live in locations where per capita consumption of electricity on average is less than what's consumed by a kitchen refrigerator in the U.S. Mm. So, I mean, these are massive disparities. So how do we overcome those? Well, it's incredibly difficult, but nuclear has to be part of that answer. There's a, a lot of interesting technologies that could be deployed at scale. Thorcon is one of them. It's a U.S. company. They have a molten salt reactor that they're putting on ships. Mm. The perfect answer for Indonesia because it's an archipelago, right? You know, you could build these ships. You could put them right on the coast and then that plug in the plug in the grid to the ship, right? So we're not lacking good ideas on the technology front. We're lacking political will. We're lacking confidence, I think, is one of the other key points. Well, just quickly, what about nuclear fusion? There's, there's some excitement about that in Britain. Do you think yeah. that's a viable... Uh, look, I'm an old man, Freddie. I'm 63 yeah. years old. I've heard about it since I was a kid. It's always been 20 years away, and they're still about 20 years away. Now, <laughs> there's a lot of momentum and a lot of money behind fusion now. You know, I'm pro-technology, right? I'm, I'm not skeptical that it could eventually work, but fission works great. Mm. freaking go after fission let's deploy fission and just get on with it right we can we know this will work why not focus on this i'm not saying we don't shouldn't be investing in fusion but i don't think it's i don't see a viable pathway at gigawatt terawatt scale in the near term because of all the technical challenges around high heat radiation all these other things that you have to solve and they're devilishly difficult to solve and and if they weren't devilishly difficult they would have been solved by now and in some time in my lifetime Give us a sense of just how much power is going to be needed by the world in the next 50 years. Sure. So if you look back, the best records, we can see that the global generation capacity is doubling every 20 or 25 years. Right. So we're now I'm trying, trying to think of uh, where uh, the U.S. has about one terawatt or one trillion, uh, 1.2 trillion watts of capacity globally. I think it's uh, something like, what is it? seven or eight terawatts, something like this. So we're going to have to, over the next then 20 years, we're going to have to build six or seven grids the size of the U.S. globally Mm. to meet this, you know, anticipated demand. That's a lot of steel, a lot of copper, a lot of generators, a lot of stuff that we're going to have to do. So from the material intensity part of this, which is a, a power density story, the best way to go forward is is with nuclear because it requires less stuff. Yeah. Wind requires, you know, copper, steel, you know, all the rest of it, enormous amounts on yeah. the orders of, you know, 10, 15 times more than natural gas and nuclear. So I, you know, those are the things that I've been saying for a long time. End-to-end natural gas and nuclear, that's the way forward. And there's enough uranium in the oh, yeah. world to keep us going for a long time. I, I think there's going to be plenty of it, especially if we reprocess it. And, you yeah. know, and let me be clear. None of this is going to be cheap or easy or quick. 
and that's why this idea of net zero in 30 years we're going to you know completely change the global economy and run it all in you know unicorn farts and fairy dust no you're not it's not it doesn't work that way yeah. right it's going to take a long time it's going to cost a lot of money and it, and we have to be very sober about where we're spending our money because especially in the US we're running these massive deficits and so we've got to be very clear-eyed about where we're going and why I wonder what you think of groups like Just Stop Oil we have in Britain. I hate those groups. Yeah, I, 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 I hate them with a burning I, I, passion. I, I, I got a feeling I, that that might I, be the. I want. The I want those kids that are throwing the soup on those paintings. I want to send them. Here's my. If I'm the judge, okay, young lady or young man or whoever you are, your sentences. Seven years. You have to go live in an African village out in the, you know, wherever. 200 miles from the nearest town of any size, and you are not allowed to use hydrocarbons for that entire time. Mm. And then I want you to come back and tell me how you like it. <laughs> That's my, no incarceration, but you cannot leave that village. No handcuffs, no prison jumpsuits, but yes. you cannot use coal, oil, or natural gas anytime, no propane. You have to go and live on cow dung and twigs and wheat straw, and then report back and you tell me how you think you're just going to stop oil, you spoiled little brat. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's, that's the nuclear reaction I wanted to, <laughs> oh, I to just, generate. I but, watch it and I just think, oh, you entitled narcissistic punk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, what I would like to say to you is that th those groups are popular oh yeah they have a lot of sway with young people it's increasingly the way a lot of young people think a lot of people in britain not just oh, young yeah. people actually a lot of people of all ages think that the world is about to melt yeah, yeah. and this is the biggest political problem in terms of powering the future if we're yeah. going to power the future sure. is that an enormous number of people will support policies that, yeah however realistic they are feel to them as though they're addressing uh, right. climate change and net zero does that and they're doing something right and yeah. they're taking some action and that they're you know by lying down in the middle of the motorway they're going to make a difference yeah well don't lie down in front of me on the motorway you might get run <laughs> over twice <laughs> I, you know i'm joking about that but it, you know but it's those groups the way they do it and the way the the entitlement that they show i mean that there's a kind of this blank that I, I watch these videos of when they're arrested or where ordinary citizens are saying, get the hell off the road. What are you doing? We have lot, you're backing up traffic for miles here and they're mm -hmm. pulling and they're, they're like passive and they're melting, you know, and I think, how is it that you got to this point in your life that yeah. this is the most meaningful thing you can do? Yeah. But I thought about this a, a lot recently. It's, they're activists, right? But it's as though I'm just can be part of this club, right? And it's like I can be in the Boy Scouts or I can be in this affinity group without any understanding of what it is that they're trying to do in terms of the system and the culture and the broader society about what they're saying and how nonsensical and, in fact, how dangerous it is. Mm. So they only identify it's like, well, this is my identity as I'm a climate hawk, right? I'm a climate activist, right? And so it's an affinity group that is this kind of cool club without any very sober understanding of what it is that they're actually promoting. And what they're actually promoting is poverty and economic ruin. Because there is no, you know, without oil, the global economy stops. And that's just a fact. Well, and like a lot of radicalism and a lot of even cults, you could say, the more hatred they generate, the oh, more right. they're yeah, convinced the happier, they're right. The happier they are. Yeah. yeah well, right. they, they're convinced that they're, they're, they're onto the true part. Their own moral certitude about it, right? Yes. But it's, 
But Michael Schellenberger presented on this uh, the other day, and he pointed out there's there's a form of narcissism there with mm. that kind of attitude, and I just have no patience for it. And I, I, I partly, you know, I'm old and grumpy, you know, as part of it. But it's also, this is my life work, right? This is what I do. This is my purpose and my passion. And think and write and talk about energy and power and their importance to everyone. And to have this kind of, blithe kind of oh well let's just quit doing it because it's not cool and you know we're going to put up wind turbines and solar panels well have you ever talked to anyone that has been had their wind turbines and solar panels put right next to their house or do you have any idea of what it is scale of what it is that you're talking about do you have any idea of the consequences of what would happen to our society if you are right Mm. you like the idea of horse shit in the street i mean Mm. not just a little bit but you know feet deep horse shit in the street because without oil work our cars go away oh electric cars okay fine well then are you in favor of child labor in the congo to produce the cobalt that elon musk needs to build his teslas does that rhyme would you like that are you in favor of poverty for women and girls in africa and indoor air pollution because they don't have propane and they can only burn dung i mean uh, magat wade has talked about this at this conference and, and many times and very passionately about it but you know, her passion for it has kind of ignited another passion in me because that is the nut of it. Mm. Young lady, are you really in favor of keeping all of these women and girls in poverty? Are you really in favor of one or two or three million women and girls dying every year from from lung disease because they're, they can't use propane and are instead using biomass to cook their, ho- their, their meals? Is that really what you're in favor of? Mm. If so, stand up and be counted then because yes. you're anti-human and you're a spoiled brat. Go away. <laughs> You've lit me up here, Freddie. I, I, mean, like I haven't it. had I like a drink. It. I'm not even, I'm dead sober here. I'm, maybe a little too much coffee. It's, I, I, I'm enjoying it. <laughs> um, I, but so far, we've managed to avoid, probably because it's usually quite a boring debate, but I should probably should ask sure. this question. You're presumably not a climate alarmist by any measure, but what is your view of the climate change debate? Where do you put yourself on the kind of, it is happening and it's terrible well, and the, it isn't uh, my, my answer is climate change is a concern. It's not our only concern. Whatever policy we take toward climate change, we have to be very careful and clear-eyed and sober about what that policy means and who it impacts. So we have to be careful that it doesn't hurt the poor and the middle class. And then let's look around and see what policies have been promulgated and how it's affecting the poor and the middle class. Okay, let's look at California. Mm. What's happened since Arnold Schwarzenegger mandated all you know these renewable mandates starting in 2008? Electricity prices in California have gone up three times faster than the rest of the U.S. as a whole. Mm. We're the highest power prices in America, in San Diego, California, right now, 47.5 cents a kilowatt hour. Yeah. It's insane. It's almost three times the national average. So, yes, I, I don't doubt CO2 is a greenhouse gas. I don't doubt that if we, you know, from what a lot of the scientists say, that if we, you know, flood the atmosphere with CO2, it may affect the climate. I don't doubt that that's a possibility. But I also am very clear about listening to both sides. And Bjorn Lomborg makes a very clear and compelling case that, yes, it's a concern, but it's not the most concern right now. And it's not the best place for us to spend our tax dollars because the payback in the benefit of doing all these radical moves toward alt energy will be more costly than the benefit. So I think that kind of clear-eyed analysis is very much needed. Mm. Um, But it's one reason why... I don't argue about CO2 or parts per million, and I don't, my view is, let's take the best no regrets strategy going forward. And what is that? Natural gas and nuclear. Mm. Least material intensity, highest power density, the technologies are mature and scalable, they're low carbon. Let's get with it. 
On that note, Robert, uh, before the lights go out, because we are in London and it could happen. Uh, <laughs> Let's hope not. Uh, or at least not wait till after about 12 o'clock on Saturday, because that's when my wife and I are flying gone. out. So yeah. after that, yeah, well, whatever. We'll find enough <laughs> We'll find enough gas to put in the, in the plane. Oh, I hope so. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Freddie. All the best. Thank you very much for listening to the Americano podcast. I would like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Ferrose, and the rest of the Spectators broadcast team, If you like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to us on. Thank you very much. God bless America.